Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is former Maroon 5 drummer Ryan Dusick. First of all, we're going to talk about some questions that I've been getting lately, and it seems like it's the same ones over and over, so we'll concentrate on two today. The first one is, will my song be plagiarized? Every songwriter has this nightmare about suddenly waking up one day hearing their song on the radio, but it's by somebody else and they're not getting any money. But think of it like this. Attorneys have a database of 685 million court cases they can pull from. There are only 3,882 that are about copyright and only 19 of those about melody, which is less than 1%. Most of copyright cases that actually happen and do go to court, they don't even mention the word melody. So what about the other 99.5% of the cases? These are all about the other rights that the Copyright Act gives, like reproduction, adaptation, publication, performance, display, and none of those have anything to do with the melody, but they have everything to do with the song. So what makes this underlying musical work protectable? What makes this song protectable? Is it the melody? No, that can't be because the song is more than just a melody. A song is melody plus harmony plus rhythm plus dynamics plus form plus timbre. And if you pick any one of these things out, they're not protectable on their own. So what is protectable? Well, the sound recording is protectable. So in other words, someone can't take your sound recording, take a copy, and then release it as their own and try to make money. No, that won't work. The other thing that's protectable is the work, the musical work, the song itself. Same thing. Someone can't take your musical work and then say it's their own. That doesn't work. Now, if we look at the song and its individual parts, we find that the pitches or the melody and harmony, those you can't protect. Those are unprotectable. So you can't just say, I have this very unique chord progression. Nope, doesn't work that way. Well, I have this very unique melody. Well, that's not protectable either on its own. I have this great beat, this great rhythm. Nope, not protectable. The way the song plays dynamically. Nope, that won't work either. And I have this unique arrangement or form. Nope, by itself, it's not protectable. The timbre of the song is different. Nope, that's not protectable either. So if you look at all of these individual parts, they're not protectable, but you put them all together and suddenly, yes, you can protect that. So just remember that the whole song is still protectable even if its individual component parts are not. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Also, I'm pleased to announce that the fifth edition of my Mixing Engineer's Handbook is now available. It's totally updated and includes new sections on mixing and immersive audio, self-mastering, new mixer interviews, and much more. Get your copy at a special discounted price at bobbyosinski.com forward slash handbook. You can also find it on Amazon and Apple Books. And remember, you can learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. 
Now, another question I get a lot is about vocal recording and what's the best way to do it and why some vocals sound good and others do not. By my count, there are eight constants that we find in vocal recording. These are items or situations that almost always prove to be true. Just keeping them in mind can save you a lot of trouble in the search for sound that works for both you and your vocalist. So the first one is your mic selection, the amount of EQ and compression used is totally dependent on the voice you are recording. Setting up the same signal chain for everyone can work sometimes, but it's best to keep an open mind and ears before you settle on a combination. Number two is the best mic that you own doesn't necessarily get the best vocal sounds. The reason why is there's no one best microphone that works well on everything, especially an instrument that's as quirky as the human voice. Try everything that you have because you might be surprised. Number three is a singer who is experienced at recording, knows which consonants are tough to record, and knows how to balance them against the vowels to get a good final result. If you have a singer that has this kind of experience, he or she is going to make you look like a genius. Number four is, with the good singer, many times you're just going to get the sound you're looking for almost automatically just by putting him or her in front of the right microphone. On the other hand, with a bad singer or even a good singer that just doesn't do well in the studio, no amount of high-priced microphones or processing may be able to get you where you need to go. Number five, in general, vocals sound better when recorded in a tighter space, but not too tight. Low ceiling rooms can also be a problem with loud singers as they tend to ring at certain lower mid-range frequencies, and that might be really difficult for you to eliminate later. Number six, Surprisingly enough, windscreens are actually of very little use when recording a vocalist that has bad technique. Two different sorts of singers fall into this category. You have singers that have never really sung with sound reinforcement, and people have developed bad habits with mics on stage. Remember that windscreens are better when they're used for their intended purposes, and that's really absorbing spit and moisture before it gets on the microphone capsule, not so much on getting rid of plosives. What you'll find is really good microphone technique will do the job. Number seven, decoupling the stand from the floor really helps to eliminate unwanted rumbles. Sometimes there are these rumbles that are coming through and you can't figure out what it is. Well, guess what? There's some rumbling happening maybe outside the building that's being transferred through your microphone stand into the microphone. So just the microphone isolation mount just isn't enough sometimes. Place the stand in a couple of mouse pads or a rug for some cheap but really effective isolation. And number eight, don't be fooled by just marking the floor with tape to get the vocalist to stand in the right position in front of the mic. Many times it happens is the vocalist is going to move in the process of singing and will be off mic anyway. An easy way to have the vocalist gauge the distance is by using hand lengths. So an open hand is about eight inches while a fist is about four inches. All you have to do is say, stay a hand away. The vocalist will usually check to see what the distance is and they won't forget, you won't have to remind them. There's actually a lot more to vocal recording than the above eight constants, but these will take you a long way to getting a great vocal sound both quickly and easily. My guest this week is Ryan Dusick 
who was Maroon 5's original drummer until he retired because of chronic nerve damage. Founding the group Carers Flowers in 1994 with fellow Brentwood High School students Adam Levine, Jesse Carmichael, and Mickey Madden, Ryan and his band worked tirelessly for a decade before the group changed its name to Maroon 5 and finally had its first hit album, Songs About Jane. Multiple hit songs, two Grammy Awards, and 20 million albums sold later, Ryan found himself suffering and without direction when his career as a performer came to an end just as it was taking off. After years of struggling with physical and mental health challenges, Ryan finally overcame in 2016 when he began his journey of recovery, culminating in a new life path. Ryan now works as a mental health professional at the Missing Peace Center for Anxiety, where he now helps others with their personal struggles. During the interview, we spoke about the early days of Maroon 5, dealing with anxiety and a chronic injury, advice from you 2 and much more. I spoke with Ryan via Zoom from his personal studio in Los Angeles. Let's go back to your background when you first started playing and you were really into baseball. Yeah. When you had your injury, did that attribute anything to when you had problems later on with the band? Yes and no. You know, it's interesting looking back on it. I kind of have a different perspective on it now than I did then. At the time, I knew that I had like chronic tendonitis in my shoulder from pitching a lot. And it kind of ended my career. I, I chose uh, after the 10th grade to stop playing baseball for that reason, because it was just I kept trying to come back from this injury over and over again. And I kept having the same injury and uh, was just getting really frustrated. Um, I started playing the drums seriously around the same time. I joined my first band uh, that summer. It's kind of interesting to look at how it bothered me so much pitching, but it didn't seem to bother me that much when I was playing the drums at that time. For a long time, it didn't bother me when I was playing the drums. So it became an issue later, like a decade later when I was on the road promoting songs about Jane uh, with Maroon 5. And I, the shoulder definitely started hurting, same shoulder at that time. And so I definitely, you know, connected the two. I thought, okay, here's the old pitching injury coming back. Uh, however, looking back on it now, there were a lot of other things going on at the same time. There was definitely a psychological element to it, definitely physical pain. And it became nerve pain at a certain point beyond just the joint and then nerve, uh, lack of coordination, which is what really took me down because I, I just couldn't play the drums the way I used to. So they were related injuries, definitely. Same arm and same same uh, pain as it came on. But as I understand it now, yeah, there was a whole other dynamic to it that was more of my nervous system kind of breaking down over a few years of touring. I'm always amazed uh, considering the amount of effort that a really good drummer has to expend that there aren't more injuries like that that occur or else I don't know about them. Maybe there are. And I, you know, I'm just not aware. Yeah. You know, it's having gone through what I did and the issues I have with my joints and nerves, when I look at myself playing when I was young and I was really influenced by like, you know, the hard rock bands of the late eighties and early nineties when I started playing. So there was a lot of flailing around, you know, my arms over my head and, my hi-hat up by my chin, you know, and that kind of thing. Uh, and I look at video of me playing at that age and I'm like, geez, that looks like it hurts. you know. <laughs> <laughs> and I watch other people playing now and I'm like, with the kind of 
wild abandon that I did back then, you know, and it's like, that looks like an injury waiting to happen. Uh, but yeah, you look at some people, they seem to go their whole career kind of really rocking out like that and not have any issues. But you do hear from time to time people having, you know, carpal tunnel and other joint and nerve issues. I think that you guys were really unique in the fact that you stopped playing together as a band and then you restarted again. You connected one one more time, got together and restarted as Maroon 5. Right. And that happened so infrequently. Usually, you know, when you disband, maybe one or two guys stay together, but not the whole band like you guys. So what was the dynamic there? Well, I think at the end of the day, there was a real connection between the four, the original four members as friends, as brothers, as teenagers that were dreaming of making it big and all that stuff. There was a chemistry as friends, but there was also a chemistry musically that I think we couldn't deny even when we went through a time that we were kind of splintering a little bit. What happened was we formed the band in 94. We signed our first indie deal in 96, our first major deal in 97, or around there, yeah, 97. We made our first album, Went on the Road, which failed. And that was really disappointing for us because everyone was telling us, you guys are going to be huge. And we were, you know, we were kids, we were teenagers still, and we had stars in our eyes and we thought, we're going to be the Beatles, you know, <laughs> or Pearl Jam or whoever, you know, was our idol at the time. Um, and it didn't work out that way, you know, and we were all really disappointed. So we kind of came home with our tails between our legs collectively. And it really affected some of us more than others, but all of us definitely to a certain extent were, were discouraged. And we tried to work on another record and everything, and it just wasn't really happening. We ended up getting dropped by Reprise, Warner Brothers. And that was the time when we had our big sort of identity crisis. It was like, what kind of band are we? Are we going to stay together? Um, Adam and Jesse took a semester at a college in New York, and I was re-enrolled at UCLA. And so we were we were really only separated for about six months, maybe. And I don't think we ever officially broke up. I think it was just kind of like, let's take a break and see where we're at. Uh, didn't really discuss what the future was going to be until they got back. And then we had to have a really big talk and a powwow and see are we on the same page? You know, what are we trying to do? Are we still going to try to give this another go? And as fate would have it, Adam and I were kind of getting into the same music at that time. Uh, a lot of Stevie Wonder, Marvin Gaye, Prince, like a lot more groove-based music, whereas we had been mostly straight up rock and pop for that. And that was just something that happened weirdly, coincidentally, you know, the two of us both were listening to a lot more R&B kind of influenced music separately from each other. And then we got together and realized, oh, wow, we're kind of on the same page again and got really inspired. And there was kind of a renaissance in my life and then in the, in the life of the, the band at that time that led to rejuvenated interest in what we were doing and a whole new, a whole new style and a whole new passion that became Maroon 5. It's not easy to change styles in a band. No. <laughs> I've always been curious about how you guys did that. I mean, obviously it was a conscious choice to do, but it's not an easy thing to suddenly make a left turn like that. Yeah, well, it over the few years there, when, from 97 to 99, 2000, we kind of went through a bunch of phases of like every kind of style of music you can imagine. You know, if you listen to one demo or one show from that time period, anyone, you're going to be like, what is this band? Because <laughs> we would have like a folk kind of song 
and a lot of acoustic stuff Adam was playing at the time, even like jam band sounding kind of stuff like Fish or Dave Matthews Band, <laughs> like very weird kind of segues for us. But then when we hit that, that common base with the kind of R&B and hip hop influence and the classic soul and stuff, that's when we kind of realized that we were onto something. But but the thing was that we were, you know, we were four and then five white kids from L.A. You know, we didn't we were under no illusions that we were becoming like an R&B band. We just thought we were really into this stuff. It was inspiring us. And we were kind of just still a garage rock band doing our impression of groove based music, you know, so that we for a long time, I think, at least for a couple of years there, we thought we were just kind of like, yeah, just tax kind of <laughs> doing an impression of that kind of music. And then all of a sudden we realized it was kind of unique that there was we were really into that. And, and Adam was discovering his voice. Uh, as a writer and as a singer in that style but then we still had that kind of raw rock element that made it a little unique so that's when we kind of like we're like okay this is different and this this is unique so let's 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 embrace this let's go all the way with this in the first album you were using a lot of loops which is you know diametrically opposed to a rock band basically <laughs> when i look at that i think well was that because you started to feel this pain that you had or was that just the way it went no the pain hadn't come yet the pain started in the touring and the years after that um the sound of that record songs about jane was kind of uh, a hodgepodge and a happy accident the way that it ended up being in the, the final edit because we really didn't know exactly what kind of record we were making if you ask different members of the band just in terms of production style i don't mean in terms of the songs but the production style, you know, we were all really influenced by a lot of hip hop production. And we even toyed with the idea of bringing in a hip hop producer and doing a very urban sounding record. The record label wanted nothing to do with that. They wanted a rock guy. They liked our live show. They wanted it to look and sound like what they saw on stage. Right. Me and I think James were the ones who were most in favor of that. Doing it live, doing it. Yes. Influenced by R&B and soul. Uh, but in the style of like, you know, like the Red Hot Chili Peppers would play funk and rap, but they did it with a hard rock edge. You would never mistake it for a sample or a loop or anything like that or Rage Against the Machine or something like that, you know. So we were we were in favor of that. And and then I think the other guys, Adam and Jesse and Mickey, uh, were toying with the idea of really even doing a lot of programming or looping beats and stuff like that. So we were kind of arguing about that. And the first week when we did the basic tracks we were really going for a very edited kind of looped clipped kind of sound and i was not really on board with it i thought it sounded kind of stiff which is weird because i'm the perfectionist i was kind of the ocd guy in the band and i was the one arguing for it to be a little looser and to sound more human but adam had been making demos with you know a drum machine at that point so he was kind of used to things lining up on the grid and everything and so he was wanting the drums to sound that way. Um, but then, thankfully, the record label heard the, the rough tracks and they were like, this is too too edited, too stiff. We want more of that live performance. So I actually went back in after they had done the overdubs and played live takes. With We brought the drum doctors in and had some nice vintage gear and stuff and somebody who actually knew what they were doing with the gear because I didn't know what I was doing at that point. I just, uh, you know, all I had to do was show up and play for those for those um, recordings. And we just, I did live takes on top of some of the existing tracks. And so about half of the record, the way it turned out, 
is that kind of first pass of clipped uh, and kind of lo slightly looped sounding stuff. And then the other half is kind of vibey and loose uh, live performances. So it's kind of a unique uh, dynamic on the record. If you listen from one song to the next, you might hear a big fat, you know, uh, John Bonham sounding kick drum and a live take. And then the next track you hear like a Questlove sounding hip hop piccolo snare kind of loop. So unique, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I would say definitely. Okay, let's fast forward. So then you start having problems, like you were saying. I didn't realize it was a coordination problem. I just thought it was a, a physical pain problem. But nonetheless, you get to the point where you're not in the band anymore. It's the same for an athlete as it is for a musician in a band where your life is based on that. Your identity is based around that. And suddenly it's not there anymore. So how did that affect you? Uh, it affected me profoundly. It was devastating. It started to affect me when I was still playing. I mean, I, I think I wasn't very conscious of what was happening to me psychologically, as I said earlier. You know, it's quite a, a slog when you have a record that is slowly creeping up the charts for two years. And then it finally is a hit. And we've been on the road literally for two years straight. And then it blows up internationally. And, and so we're flying all over the world and, and not just performing on stage, but, you know, on television and in radio stations. And so, you know, it was over a long period of time that my body and really my mind was kind of breaking down. But it wasn't until I went down completely physically and couldn't play anymore that things really started to fall apart. And it was like a year and a half between that and when I officially left the band when, you know, they kind of made the decision we have to get moving on the next record and we can't wait any longer for you to recover. And yeah, it was devastating at that point. It was like, you know, more than just disappointing. It was really losing my identity. You know, it was everything that I had kind of, that had been the, my self-definition, my self-worth, everything at that point. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know what I wanted to do after that. I had also lost, you know, the biggest connection, sort of spiritual connection I had because music and the guys was a family you know it was it was everything to me and even my friends from college and all the this sort of circle around the band was really a big part of my life that i felt alienated from because they were so centered around that band and i had such mixed feelings because it was like at that point in my life i loved those guys i loved the music but i also had so much pain attached to it that i wanted to distance myself from it you know and I, I started drinking too much. I started, you know, just isolating myself. I uh, went through a really, really dark time uh, for a couple of years there. And I think in my mind at the time, I was just kind of like, well, life's going to suck. I'll just make the best of it. You know, I'll try to just enjoy myself. And really, that meant kind of escaping and not dealing with the feelings for a while there. Um, so it took a while for me to really work through it. Um, I, you know, it was a number of years before I quit drinking and started to really work on myself and realize that I had to go through a grieving process, really, you know, all the stages of grief to get to acceptance of, of this thing that had been so wonderful and realizing that it was wonderful and that nothing could change how wonderful it was, but I had to accept, you know, and have find some closure about the fact that it was over and that I had to move on with my life. And when I did that, everything kind of changed for me. I, I had a new lease on life and uh i found a new passion which is psychology and i'm a therapist now so that was <laughs> an interesting change yeah yeah definitely well especially since you've gone through so many of the things 
that your clients are going through. So you can relate. Absolutely. And I think that's so important. Many times a therapist just can't relate. I mean, book-wise they can, but not experience-wise. Okay, so what did you do then before you came to this new career? You mean between the band and, uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I did a little bit of producing and writing and stuff. Um, Nothing major. I mean, I had made enough money and, you know, had enough interest in the band that I was supporting myself with that and my investments and stuff. So I didn't really have to get a, uh, a day job, so to speak, for a while there. And so that, well, that was very fortunate, obviously, for me. But at the same time, it, it allowed me to kind of wallow in, in that uh, in-between phase for a while. But I did take on a few projects knowing that music was still my passion and that I had something to offer from the experience that I had. I always loved the creative process and being in the studio more than anything. So I, there were a couple, you know, artists that were friends of ours, other bands that had come up with us and people that had asked me to work with them. And I did a few records and EPs and things that I uh, produced and did a little bit of songwriting. And um, it never really got to the level that I was hoping that it would. You know, at, at a certain point, I was like, it'd be great to be a producer and songwriter. But the world was kind of changing. You know, I was kind of from the, the world of of the the more organic way of making records. You know, our first record was on two inch tape, you know. And I love being in a studio and just stacking up a record in the classic rock way. And the whole world had gone on to a computer and, you know, the, the digital technology, which was a little new and foreign to me at that point. So I, I felt like I was a little behind the times catching up. So that didn't really work out, but I, I did have some fun, you know, making some records. And it's something that to this day, when I have free time, I, I would love to make another record, you know, produce something. Snapping out of, of a depression, snapping out of a, a low point in your life is difficult. What happened? Was there something that caused that or did you just spot them out? Yeah, well, you know, the, the drinking, the alcoholism had gotten to a pretty bad place. And what happened was on top of being d- depressed, anxiety was becoming a major issue for me, which was something that I also always dealt with. I just it, it wasn't something that I was consciously aware of how much of it affected me. I knew I was kind of a, a guy who was wound up pretty tight. Um, and I put a lot of pressure on myself. Like I said, I was perfectionistic and a little obsessive compulsive at times. Um, but I didn't realize how much anxiety was a part of my constitution until it became a real, real problem for me between isolating so much and and drinking and then self-medicating. Well, medicating with anti-anxiety medication and then self-medicating with alcohol it got to a point where my anxiety was like panic disorder and even like agoraphobia like i I had a hard time going out into public um sober and i was really at a point where it was affecting every part of my being i felt physically unwell mentally like i said anxious and depressed and just spiritually as they say spiritually bottomed out you know very disconnected from life. And I just, at a, at a certain point, you know, you have a couple moments when you're living that kind of life that's very humbling. You know, you find yourself in a position where you're just like, wow, clearly my way of doing things is not working out too well. You know, maybe it's time to give uh, someone else's way a chance. And thankfully I had some people around me that were there to kind of point me in the right direction and, and help me find the path that I needed to go to. I went into rehab and I had to go through detox and all that stuff. And after that, it was, you know, I hate to sound cliche. There was like a spiritual awakening of sorts where 
it was just the the magic of feeling connected again is really all that it is. You know, feeling uh, like I had something to offer. You know, I feeling like I uh, I wanted to be connected to human beings and life in a way that I hadn't been for a long time. Realizing there was a second act to my life that I had been sort of avoiding and escaping, and and that I actually had some gifts that I had left to share with the world that had maybe to do with music, but maybe nothing to do with music as well. And and so I just kind of found some new passions in terms of um, being of service to other people, you know, giving of myself in a way that got me out of the, the kind of self-obsession that that life can lead to. And that's when everything kind of changed for me. It was like, aha, this is what life's about. And it doesn't have to be uh, so miserable. I, I was the maker of my own misery at that point, And I realized that I could also be the maker of my own, you know, joy again. You make your own reality, as they would say. Yeah. Was there something that triggered in you the idea that maybe you should become a uh, psychologist? Yeah, it was a number of things. You know, I, like I said, I always liked the creative process. Being collaborative was something I always enjoyed. Before I, the band became a big thing, I was uh, uh, the editor of the high school newspaper, so I ran the editorial board. So people and bringing a group together was always something that I enjoyed, and I thought, I had a talent for, and I, I was kind of, I guess, a little bit of the the big brother in the band. I was the oldest guy, so they looked to me for a little, even though I, ha- I was very young and, I, you know, I didn't have a lot of wisdom, but I had a little bit more than the rest of them. <laughs> so that was something I took pride in. Uh, but then it was really, you know, in, in sobriety, in working on myself and feeling connected to other people and wanting to, to be helpful to the people who were just starting the, the process. Um, I realized that it was fulfilling to me just to give it myself in that way. I was volunteering at a recovery center for a couple of years in early recovery. And I would just go there and tell them my story and tell them the things that I learned and give them encouragement and just listen to their story. And I found that just being there for those people and giving of myself in that way was very fulfilling. And then I was getting a lot of positive feedback. It was like, when you tell your story, it, you really can articulate ideas of recovery really well, and um, it's really helpful. And I was like, eh, "This is there's something to this. I want to keep doing this." And then people were kind of like, "You should do this for a living. You should, you know, go back to school and become a counselor of some kind." And when I heard that, it was just one of those things. It was like, rather than running away and escaping, I was like, "Yeah, I'm going to do that. I'm going to run towards that." And and I just applied to a school and I got in. And next thing I knew, a month later, I was in a clinical psychology master's program. And I was like, this is my new path and we'll see where this takes me. And maybe music will be a part of it. You know, I was like, maybe music therapy can be a part of it. Who knows? Certainly creativity can be a part of it. Do you specialize in anything? Uh, I don't have a specialization per se yet, but I do uh, work at a clinic for anxiety. Uh, It's called the Missing Peace Center for Anxiety in Agora Hills, California. And it's obviously that it's in the name. (laughs) It's a pretty, you know, high needs in terms of like people that are have been hospitalized or, or are avoid, trying to avoid, you know, being hospitalized or, you know, panic disorder, pretty high level anxiety. So it's really interesting to focus on people uh, with that those kind of needs. But even within that, you see a broad range of backgrounds, you know, because uh, anxiety and depression can go hand in hand, as you know, I'm sure. Um, trauma, of course, is a big cause for these things. Um, so you see a lot of, you know, background of trauma, substance abuse, you know, this is an issue that comes into any area of mental health at some point, uh, a lot of times. And, uh, so, you know, anxiety is the focus right now, but, you know, definitely dabble in other areas. Is your book coming out or is it out? 
It's coming out November 15th on Ben Bella Books. It's available for pre-order now. Uh, I put, you know, this book was really kind of like the culmination of a lot of the things that we, we've been talking about. It's a memoir and it's, it, it really came at a moment in my life when I was really inspired and feeling reawakened and looking back on my life and trying to find closure on what has been and, and inspiration for what will be. And so it kind of spans, it spans my life up until now, uh, but it focuses a lot on the years in the band. I mean, that's a big chunk of it. It's probably about two thirds of it. And it really is from the perspective of, um, you know, me and the band trying to make it out there as a as young artists and then and then making it. But me going through my struggles along the way, you know, whether it be the anxiety and the pressure I put on myself, perfectionism and then the, the external pressures that that came from, you know, being in the limelight and performing for uh, three, four years on the road there straight. And then and then dealing with the loss of that and everything that that, that the toll that took on me and what it required of me to eventually um, turn the page and find the new life that I have. So really, I look at it as at its core, something that hopefully is inspiring of hope and recovery, but also just a fun book. There's a lot of great stories in it. I hope it's, it's entertaining for people that enjoy, you know, stories about musicians and creative people and the whole almost famous kind of journey <laughs> making it. But there's there's a little bit of something hopefully for everyone. It's a, it's, a, it's a roller coaster for sure. There's a lot of ups and downs. Did you struggle with the limelight? Yes and no. I mean, I wasn't obviously in the limelight to the degree that Adam Levine is or was then, uh, you know, it's pretty common. Obviously the lead singer becomes the focus and even in interviews, I never had to talk as much as I am in this one. You know, <laughs> I just sat there and tried to look pretty while Adam really asked all the questions to Adam. Uh, so it wasn't the kind of thing where, you know, I went out my front door and got mobbed by paparazzi or anything like that. So I never had to really deal with the kind of things that, the limelight can bring in that regard, privacy issues and all that. But the, 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 the pressure, certainly, of having to be on all the time, especially being on the road for, you know, really a four-year album cycle. I, you know, I'm, I'm by nature a bit of an introvert. I've become more extroverted over the course of my life and become a very social person. But I need my alone time. I, I need the, my downtime to kind of recuperate and recenter myself. And there's just none of that when you're living that life. You know, it's just, it's just day after day after day, there's demands on you having to be there, show up, have a smile on your face and put on a good show or, you know, just schmooze or whatever is asked of you at that moment of promoting, you know, that thing that you're out there promoting. That could be really exhausting and it could be at a certain point, there's a breaking point, right? Where it's just, uh, it starts to take a toll on you. Maybe not for everyone. Some people are cut out for that life and they love to just be on all the time. I'm just, I don't think at my core, one of those people that that was the life that really uh, suited me well. So yeah, it did take a toll on yeah, me. To yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, Ryan, last question for you. What's the best piece of advice that maybe somebody imparted to you or you learned along the way? Hmm. Well, the first thing that leaps to mind, and it's kind of along the line of what we were just talking about, piece of advice we heard over and over again, and this is both good advice for a, an aspiring artist, but terrible advice for your mental health, probably. I remember we were playing the top of the pops at the BBC, right at the peak of when our, I think this, I think the song This Love was blowing up. 
And we had a, a an office or whatever you call it, a dressing room right next to uh, U2, who was playing on the roof that night. And uh, so Bono and Edge, we were in the hallway as we were coming back from soundcheck or blocking or whatever. And we got to talking to them for a minute. And the advice they gave us were, was say yes to everything on your first album. No matter what it is, whatever they offer you, say yes to everything. Because if you say no to anyone, they'll never ask again. That's great. So it was funny at the time because we had already kind of adopted that. And we were already like two years into it and we were already exhausted. So it was kind of like ironic that he was telling. I mean, we appreciated the advice, but it was something we had heard several times. Adam Duritz from Counting Crows gave us the same advice. He said, Counting Crows said no. They had already been touring in the States on their first album for a long time. They got offered a tour of England and they turned it down because they were burnt out. And they said they've paid the price for that ever since because promoters in England remember that and they haven't been able to sell tickets in England the way uh, they did in the States. So it was something we heard over and over again was if you if you pay your dues on that first record, if you go out there and you say yes to everything that's offered to you, all of those promoters, all of those club owners, all of those distribution hubs, whatever, will be really invested in you. And they'll take care of you when you come back around and you'll have a career. But if you say no, they don't forget. You can find out more about Ryan's book, Harder to Breathe, which is available for pre-order on Amazon and other fine book vendors. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Remember that you can learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, You'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bye.